Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio here with a good friend, Vox Day, an epic fantasy writer. You may think that's a writer of epic fantasy. No, he's just epic all around. A multiple-time Hugo Award nominee, professional game designer, and he also runs the book publisher, Cassilia House. His nonfiction books include Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police, a must-read, and Conservatives, How, quote, Conservatives Betrayed America, also in the category called Must Read. Vox also maintains a pair of popular blogs, Vox Populi and Alpha Game, which between them average over 2 million, million page views per month. And you can find his work at voxday.blogspot.com. And we'll link to all of this below, as well as castiliahouse.com. Vox, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. It's good to see you again. So something that I've always often thought about over the last couple of years, when I I consume a lot of media, partly, you know, because it's fun and partly because uh, it's, you know, a cultural commentator and so on. It's kind kind of the gig. And... I used to be sort of a passive consumer. I mean, I've written a lot of stuff, written like 30 plays, a bunch of novels and stuff like that. But I used to be kind of like a passive consumer. But after I got into philosophy uh, and politics and, you know, Breitbart's famous dictum that uh, uh, politics uh, is downstream from culture, recognizing that culture is, the culture wars are very important, I became sort of more alert to what was going on in what I was watching. Because, you know, Hollywood and a lot of the movies and TV shows, they're very entertaining. They're very, you know, a great actress and, and some decent scripts a lot of times. But there's a lot going on that's underneath the surface. And since then, I've kind of have a, I'm kind of of two minds about it. Like, I kind of wish I was back to, like, early, dumb, <laughs> you know, toilet of consuming uh, media. But now... I'm sort of more aware of what they're doing to me while they're entertaining me. Uh, and uh, I don't know what your process has been with that, but I'm really alert to it now and I can't really shut it off. I think that's a good thing because it's you know, good to be aware of your environment and what's coming into your head. But man, alive, it is just relentless, the amount of programming that's going on uh, in this media. What's your sort of thoughts or experience with this stuff? Well, I think it's gotten to the point that it's so overt that even if you wanted to remain you know, blind, deaf, and dumb to it, it would be difficult. You know, the I, I occasionally write on Alpha Game, which is the the blog that's more focused on on human relations, um, about the way that the cultural programming is really, really aggressively trying to push uh, interracial dating on viewers. Um, now. I don't think that there's necessarily anything in, intrinsically wrong with with that, um, with the interracial dating. If, if two people are interested, you know, so be it. But there is something very, very forced and artificial about it when you see a highly, highly improbable uh, breakdown of couples, and it's not only on the uh, television shows and in the movies, but it's also in the advertising too. I mean, it's, it's, it's so absurd, you know, uh, over here in Europe, we tend to watch English TV and, you know, the, the racial demographics in England are, are very different than they are in the United States. And there's a, a lot fewer, um, you know, blacks or Africans, and there's a lot more Arabs, Asians, right? But what's remarkable is that on the advertisements, there's this tremendous, uh, tremendously high percentage, improbably high percentage of black men and white women uh, in the commercials. At one point, in fact, um, there were, I counted something like nine over the course of a single half an hour television show versus seven uh, white on white couples. And at, at one point, my wife joked that uh, 
that must be all the interracial, you know, the, the black male, white female couples in England. Because, I mean, it's, it, just, it just doesn't exist. It's not probable. And so you, you have to ask yourself, okay, why are, why are they pushing that? Why, you know, if, if nothing else, uh, in, in that particular case, you know, why do we always see the black male, white female coupling when actually the white male, Asian female coupling is, is statistically much more likely? Um, especially, especially in England, but you don't. Well, and it's interesting because the stats for interracial marriages are not always that great, right? I mean, the higher probability to break up and so on. And what's interesting about the interracial couple thing, which I see a lot of as well, is it's always prior to kids. Because, of course, the challenge with interracial couples, is, as it is with interfaith couples and so on to some degree, is – how are you going to raise the kids? In which uh, culture? In which ethnicity? And so on. And these are complicated questions, which are difficult to answer. And I think a lot of sort of uh, interracial romances uh, occur prior to kids uh, being in the picture, because then it becomes more complicated. But they don't usually deal with the challenges of interracial dating, which, of course, is, you know, that uh, people grow up with different ethnicities. And according to a lot of the leftists, different ethnicities have different experiences of the world. And um, this general push without dealing with the challenges of it, I think, paints a bit too rosy of a picture for what can sometimes and statistically is often more of a challenging relationship. Well, there's no question. I mean, you know, I'm triracial myself. I'm, uh, I'm European, I'm Mexican, and I'm Native American. And, you know, the, there have been, I'm trying to think, um, my generation is doing okay with only one divorce, but the... Um, you know, my parents are divorced and, um, it, yeah, a lot of people don't realize how much pressure that those sort of differences can, can make on a, what, either a marital or a, uh, non-marital relationship. Now, I don't think that that really had anything to do with, with my parents, uh, breakup. They had, uh, other pressures <laughs> that were considerably more, but, um, the fact of the matter is that, uh, it's not something that should be celebrated simply because it's, I mean, it, you know, it'd be like um, encouraging people to marry alcoholics or encourage people to you know, marry um, people who are uh, psychologically unstable. I mean, these are all risk factors for marriages. And yet here you've got, um, and the, the irony is that uh, that particular combination, uh, black male, white female, is actually the worst uh, and least likely to succeed combination. Um, in fact, if they were to push black female, white male, you know that is actually more likely to stay married than a, a, a you know uh, two black people or two white people or two Asians. Um, and yet, you don't see that as much. So ag- again, it is quite clearly intentional, and it is it is quite clearly being pushed. Um, and even I was going to say that um, doing it before children is more typical of the television shows. Mm. On the advertisements, you'll often see the uh, couples with the um, you know the 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 black male uh, or the black father, the white mother, and then a, a two racially mixed children. But again, that's complete bollocks because. If you go to, you know, one thing that we noticed when we were at uh, the Paris Disneyland is you saw a lot of, um, we saw a lot of white couples with their kids, and then you saw a, a much smaller number of black couples with their kids. But every single time we saw 
a white mother with uh, with mixed kids, she was there with her mother. The, the mm-hmm. there was only only one out of all the couples we saw was the father actually there. Now, I mean, who knows? It could have just been a coincidence that that happened to be the pattern that day. But again, what we're seeing is that the image being pushed by the media, especially in the commercials, is cultural programming. It is it is not um, reflecting reality. It is an attempt to create reality, which of course is what commercials exist to do in the first place. Well, and it does seem to be that the media that talks about the incompatibility of blacks and whites, which is uh, more so, I think, in America than just about any other place where, you know, there's institutionalized racism, they talk about the the cops hunting black youths and black men and so on. Uh, And then you go, so that's a very volatile narrative, the sort of race baiting that goes on. And then you switch to the commercials where, you know, we're all one big happy family. It's kind of jarring <laughs> that these two things occurring at the same time feels a bit schizoid at times. It's totally incoherent. But you know, then again, the SJW narrative has always been dynamic and it's constantly shifting. I mean, I think we've talked about that the only way you can understand the way SJWs interact with each other is to watch a school of fish and watch how they all shift very rapidly uh, in sync and in time. Um, because they're constantly changing the narrative and they're con- constantly having to change their tune. And that's why they can, w- at one moment, be singing the it's a small world thing um, and portraying this, this uh, idealistic uh, vision of equality and, and you know, racial uh, sameness and all that sort of thing. And then in the very next breath, be screaming about Black Lives Matter and how all whites are racists and all cops want to kill black people. I mean, it, it's, it's totally incoherent, but you know, let's face it, um, we're not going to make much headway with anyone uh, pointing out their inconsistencies and hypocrisies because that's been readily apparent to anyone who's paying attention for decades. Well, okay, so there's this basic rule of the left, which is that they wish to portray a world wherein all disparate outcomes are the result of prejudice. All disparate outcomes between ethnicities, between cultures, between genders in particular, we get to that, we can, we can sort of circle that one for a while because it's a huge one. So if there are disparate outcomes between uh, ethnicities, there are diff- disparate outcomes between genders in particular, in the old trope about you know, women earning 75 cents on the dollar or whatever, unless they work for Donald Trump, in which case it's about equal. But um, this argument that all disparate outcomes must be the result of prejudice, I think requires that you portray men and women as identical, that there are just as many female, like in movies, there are just as many female scientists as male scientists. In fact, there are often more, and they tend to be younger and uh, prettier than the average of male or female. So if you can portray this world where the distribution of talents, the distribution of capacity to commit to a career, the, the distribution of aggression in pursuing that career, all of that is equal across all human beings, then all disparate outcomes can then be chalked up to prejudice. But since, of course, reality doesn't actually line up with the narrative, you then have to try and hook people in with entertainment and jokes and and good acting and, and so on and nice sets and pretty people. You have to lure them in to replace the empirical evidence of their lived experience with the programmed pseudo evidence of the media uh, so that then you can say, well, you know, 
your experience has been that women are just as capable and there's just as many female scientists. So then why aren't women getting as much in terms of Nobel Prizes or why aren't women at the top of their profession here? Because on TV, that's what they all seem to be. Therefore, there must be some sort of prejudice, some sort of sexism, some sort of misogyny going on. But when you sort of get out of that ghetto of ideology and look at the actual facts in the world, well, yeah, women um, end up making less than men because they generally make uh, different choices and also because they tend to be clustered more around the center of the IQ bell curve, uh, which means they're usually never as ridiculously unintelligent as men nor as ridiculously intelligent as men. It's, a you know, average. And also they like to work part-time, they have kids, they make different choices, they tend to prioritize the relationships over work, and I've got no problem with that, but it's just not going to be as lucrative. And of course, they're taken out of the workforce uh, if they want to have kids and they want to be decent moms for some time right in the middle when men are really hitting the gas and all that. So I think this does sort of feed the narrative of pitting us all against each other and putting people into this twisted brain matrix of uh, racism and sexism and homophobia and all that kind of stuff. As long as the East Asians are not visible, right? As long as like the, the Japanese and the, uh, the, the Chinese are not visible because they break that narrative. And I think that standpoint, it does serve that sort of pitting us against each other and creating resentment of victim classes. If they can portray all of this egalitarianism, they then end up at the payoff of people being resentful and feeling like they're being victimized uh, on the other side. Well, I think at some level, it's even cruder than that, um, it's slightly disturbing to see that they are actually successful in convincing people of false facts. Like, for example, there's a number of studies that have been done or polls that have been taken, and people wildly overestimate the number of, or the percentage of homosexuals in the population. Um, and that's because of the media. That's because of television. You know, every Every group of six people has their charming gay friend you know and so uh, i i think the main idea was actually to portray homosexuals as people who live uh very similar lives to um you know to the straight community which is you know as anyone uh who's in the music or the arts community knows is completely not true um but i think that the the additional result that they that they succeeded in uh, convincing people is that there were a lot more gays than there in fact are. Uh, and an, another example is uh, uh, Jews in the United States. You know, you know it's remarkable when you're, watch, when you're watching television, you probably see five, maybe even ten times more Jews, Jewish characters, than you see Southern Baptists or Baptists. And yet, the, you know, the Baptists in the United States are something like 17% of the population. Jews are, are 2% and declining. And so, you know, just from a, a purely statistic, statistical point of view, you would think that you would have a lot more Christians in general. You think you'd have a lot more uh, Baptists uh, specifically. But for some reason, uh, you know, they, they consider the Baptists to be a, a a, a dangerous population that they don't want to portray very accurately. And so, you know, you've, you've always got your little um, reference to Hanukkah during the Christmas specials and, and all that sort of thing. And again, you know, it, it would be reasonable. I, I, I suppose that you, know, you, could, you could cut some slack just because a lot of shows are set in New York City, which does have a high, high uh, Jewish population. But if you 
are looking at the entire United States, it's, it's just, it's so statistically improbable as to be ridiculous. And so, um, you know, now we start to see a pattern. Okay. They're, they're showing a statistically improbable number of interracial couples, and they're only showing one type of interracial couple for the most part. Um, then they're, they're, uh, showing an improbable number of homosexuals. They're showing a ridiculously improbable number of Jews. And that's when you start to realize that there is something going on there. There is some level of cultural programming taking place. And, and what's even more disturbing about it is how specific some of these programs are. Um, you know, for example, uh, a study came out recent not a study, a story came out recently talking about the way that Hollywood for the last 10 years has been trying to lay the groundwork for Hillary Clinton's presidency. And so in shows like The Good Wife, uh, Madam Secretary, and a lot more shows, I mean, I think they had as many as uh, 10 different shows that had a character who was essentially a stand-in for Hillary Clinton, uh, a a blonde woman who wore pantsuits and was either the president or the secretary of state who would eventually become the president. Um, and again, what they're trying to do is they're trying to shape reality. They're trying to uh, affect people's subconscious assumptions and then make their desired reality come to pass. And the, the more that you're aware of this, the more difficult it is for them to... Um, convince you that that's the way it should be on the downside it does tend to um it does tend to reduce your enjoyment you know just when you see the man behind the curtain it's not quite as interesting and and what they're really doing is that they're because they're doing it so bluntly and so crudely they're showing their hand well and let's let's talk about the baptists and and the christians because the portrayal of Christianity in the mainstream, uh, it's you know it's the repressed preacher, uh, it's the it's the Catholic pedophile preacher, uh, it's the even if he's not specifically a preacher, it's the conservative who is square and dull and boring and uh, the butt of everyone. He's not cool. He's not hip. You know, it's the Flanders from this, the uh, Simpsons and so on and uh, lots of other examples uh, of this sort of stuff. So. The degree to which Christians are portrayed in a negative light, um, compared, of course, to the enormous amount of charitable works and good that Christians do uh, in America, is something quite astonishing. And it must be sort of how, I don't know, maybe gay people felt about how they were portrayed in the past and so on. And it's just become so relentlessly negative that um, uh, it's become one of these cliches. Like if there's, if there's a land developer in a kid's show, he's just going to be driving tractors over bunnies and, and all development and all capitalism and, you know, that, that sort of level of, of just uh, bald-faced uh, programming. Uh, and I find it uh, shocking the degree to which it happens with Christian characters. Yeah, it, it's really kind of remarkable. I mean, you know, as an evangelical Christian myself, um, I don't really take offense at it just because... Uh, it, it's so wildly and ludicrously off the mark. I mean, it, 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 it simply doesn't describe a single person that I know of the hundreds, if not thousands of Christians that I know. And for example, there's a, a trope that I, there is one trope that I find particularly annoying because it, it appears so often in fiction. Um, and it's so remarkably stupid that, that I, it just, 
it boggles my mind that that anyone even writes this because uh, it's it's just not even possible. But what always happens is um, the uh, stock Christian character makes some statement that is judgmental about uh, someone, and it's always either about. Um, a woman's promiscuity or uh, a homosexual, you know, a, a judgmental comment. And then at this point, the atheist stand-in for the author uh, promptly puts himself forward and says, Aha! You have not read your Bible. Do you not remember that when Jesus was with the adulterous woman, and what did he say? And of course, the the Christian who has been attending uh, sermons for years on Sundays, and if he's anything like practically all the Christians I know, also attends a weekly Bible study where they, yes, read the Bible and quite They closely. may have heard the phrase, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Not only that, but, but not only do they not know that, but they don't come back with the obvious response from every single Christian that you ever bring up, you know, he who is within cast the first stone, go forth and sin no more. Okay? Yes, Jesus did uh, stop the Pharisees from stoning the woman, and, but he then turned around to the woman and said, stop doing it. And so, um, and it's really rather remarkable because, I mean, I, I just out of curiosity once, I asked about 10 of my Christian friends, you know, I, I proposed a similar situation. What would you say? And every single one of them just immediately said, well, that's fine and all, but you know, you're also supposed to go forth and sin no more. And yet in, in, the, in the trope in these books, you know, not only has the Christian never, ever encountered the, the idea of uh, not casting the first stone, but of course couldn't possibly come, come back with that response because this hypothetical Christian never, ever knows the Bible as well as the atheist. And the thing is, is that this is a common theme that you see all the time. And yet, I can tell you firsthand from debating atheists, um, you know, qu uh, quite a bit, uh, including atheists who really very, very seriously believe that they knew the Bible very well, I have yet to encounter any atheist who, who does. And, and it's not, that, it's not that they don't know it at all but they often don't know it very well, and they are often not very familiar, even with like the pop Christian theology. There, there was one example, for example, um, I was uh, having a, a debate with this, this one particular atheist who claimed that he'd been a, a Christian and oh, had gone to Bible studies and all this sort of thing. And then it came out in the very beginning of the debate that he wasn't even familiar with the Christian doctrines that appear in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, we're not talking about high-level theological discourse here. We're not going back to Tertullian or anything like that. Um, yeah, it was so comical because it was quite clear that he was living that particular trope we were just discussing. But then when he encountered reality, he realized, oh, well, you know, wait a minute. Maybe I don't know quite as much as I thought. Sorry to interrupt, but this, this drives me nuts too because um, this idea that, that if a Christian passes judgment – that you then can say, ah, you know, judge not, yes, ye be judged, and so on. Now, I'm no theologian, to put it mildly, but, but it seems to me that the Christian approach is that you can judge the actions of the person, but the final judgment 
of the worthiness of that person's soul relies on God. You can hate the sinner. You do not have the. You can hate the sin. You do not have the right to hate the sinner because that judgment is reserved for the omniscience of God. So saying Christians can't judge at all is a misnomer because Christians are certain. That's what the Ten Commandments is for. Of many commandments is to say yes, you can judge, but the final dispensation of the ultimate end and and judgment of that person's entire life and existence is not for yours uh, to discover because of course they could have a deathbed repentance, they could find Jesus later in their life, and only God would know for sure at the end of their lives what all of their choices amount to. So just because you don't have omniscience doesn't mean you can't judge. Is that a fair way to to put it? Actually, you could put it even more strongly if you wanted to. Um, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely correct, but there is another level to it, which is that uh, Christians are not expected to judge those who are outside the church. So what that means is, that, you know, um, for example, I had a, a friend, um, and he had been having an affair, and he had he'd been acting really squirrely around me, and I, I couldn't understand why. And finally, you know, we were working out together, and I just said, "Look, why are you acting so squirrely? You know, what what's going on? There's clearly something going on," and and I, I <laughs> of course, I knew about it from you know my, from my wife, and I said, "Does this have anything to do with the affair you're having?" And <laughs> his jaw just dropped. Hopefully you didn't and, do that while he was benching a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. He ends up with that Clinton exit. <laughs> but but uh, I, I said, does it have anything to do with that? And, you know, he was, he said, you, you knew about that? I said, yes. And he said, well, aren't you going to, you know, lecture me about that? Or so I said, no, you know, you shouldn't be doing it. I said, um, you don't need me to tell you that. I mean, I, you shouldn't be. I said, but, you know, I'm still your friend. And he said, but, you know, it's, it's, it's really bad, right? And I said, well, it is bad, but you're not a Christian. So I, I said, you're not, uh, I said, I'm not going to hold, it's not my job to police your behavior. I said, if, if we were both in the church and you were doing this, yeah, I would have to, I would tell you, you either need to quit this or you need to get out because, you know, that's uh, in the book of James, they, it lays it down a very clear, you know, first you talk to him alone. Then you talk to him with a friend. Then you talk to the church authorities. And if they still won't stop what they're doing, then you throw them out of the church until, they're, until they knock it off um, and are repentant. Uh, but, you know, you never hear people talking about that, even though, you know, every Christian, every evangelical Christian that I know is perfectly familiar with, with those verses in James, even though I will be the first to point out um, Christians are really, really bad about doing any of that because we tend not to like to. I mean, I mean, it's kind of ironic that Christians are often considered to be so judgmental because, frankly, uh, we're not anywhere near judgmental enough with each other. Um, we don't hold, we don't follow the Bible and hold each other accountable the way that we should. Um, but regardless, uh, it's not, it's not a Christian's job to. Uh, shake his finger and 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 try to make a non-believer feel bad. I mean, if if they don't believe in in the fundamental, then why on earth would you expect them to follow the rules? Doesn't make sense. Right, right. So yeah, evil Christian. We have the stupid dad. Right. The 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 the, the dumb male. Um, you know, I, when I I grew up, you know, I'd come home at at lunch and uh, you know they'd leave it to Beaver and stuff like that was on, and so I grew up without a dad, but. You know, I at least got some positive male role models through the media uh, and through a couple of friends' fathers who were great, great guys. 
But uh, I don't know that that's really so common anymore. Uh, I think that if people are growing up with, um, you know, the dad who's distracted, the dad who's clueless, the dad who doesn't know how to do anything, and who is constantly corrected, not just by his wife, his long-suffering wife usually, but also by his children, this elevation of children to the wiseacres of the family I've always found to be particularly disturbing. I mean, yeah, kids have a lot to offer, a lot of great feedback, but boy, putting them in charge is really flipping the pyramid on its head. And the number of times, well, you see this cliche, you know, with the kid, they, they, the parents try and explain something to the kid in an exaggerated way, and the kid says, you know, well, I'm, I'm a kid, I'm not dumb, you know, I'm 12, I'm not five, you know, and, and, and it turns out that the kid knows how to do stuff. Or the number of times the dad's trying to do something, and the kid just walks over and pushes a button, and it works magically, and so on. I guess that appeals to the vanity of children, um, but I think it really gives them a sense of being rudderless and leaderless in a world where there is a lot that kids need to know about the future. Well, I, I think it's scary to children. Uh, I, I think that what they're attempting to do is to create um, fearful creatures that are easily led by a externally provided authority. Um, you know, the it's always been very, very important to totalitarians to try to destroy the nuclear family. Mm. Uh, it's always been a goal. You know, it's amazing how if you look at anything from the the early communist programs of Lenin to the um, to the the various projects of the Nazis, all of them were fundamentally designed to separate the bond between parent and child. And that often involves separating the bond between man and wife. Um, and and it's, it's really a, a terrible thing to do to a child because when a child has a natural understanding of the, the relationship between the man and his wife um, and the authority, of the, you know, the authority of the father, the mercy of the mother, um, you know, that's, uh, then they tend to end up with a fairly healthy psychological background. Um, you know, they, they, they learn to respect authority without fearing it. They learn to, um, you know, they learn that mercy exists, but it's not always going to save you. Uh, you know, the whole wait till your father gets home. Um, and, and so, you know, that's the way that civilization, uh, is, is constructed, and that's the way that civilization maintains itself. It's on the atoms, the atomic structure of the nuclear family. And, and upon that, you can build you know, great nations, you can build entire civilizations. Um, and so you know, the, the common theme that we're seeing in, across all of this is ultimately the target is Western civilization. You know, when, when people ask me, you know, are you a libertarian still? Are you, are you this? Are you that? You know, the, the, the only two things that I really say anymore is that, A, I'm a Christian, and B, I'm a Western civilizationist. You know, I'm not really overly concerned about, you know, the state borders or those sort of things. I mean, I believe they're very important. I'm, I'm a nationalist in that sense. But ultimately, you know, the thing that's so important to us is Western civilization because, you know, that's what so many of the, the great things that we appreciate in terms of art or that we require um, or that we enjoy in terms of technology or that we need in terms of medical care. It, they're all the fruits of Western civilization. And so that's why it's not these things that you're talking about. You know, it'd be easy to say, oh, what does it matter? It's a stupid program about a stupid dad. Who cares? 
Um, but the problem is, is that each of these, each of these television shows, each of these commercials, they're all just one more little chip um, at the foundation of Western civilization. And that's why I think it's so important uh, for those of us in the alternative right uh, who, or those of us who support Western civilization, r- regardless of what you call yourself, to um, constantly oppose those who are attempting to destroy the foundations of Western civilization. That is, yeah, that is very profound. And, and there is no other civilization that I would want to exist in. I mean, that, that's just a basic reality that uh, I is so much enjoy the public process of, of speaking and reasoning and questioning that um, th- that is what the West has, for a various number of reasons, allowed or evolved into. I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't really function, uh, wouldn't want to function in any other civilization. So it's a bit of a make or break for me, is <laughs> kind of what I'm saying. But um, I, I've seen this as well in, in movies in the past. There used to be this... I don't know if it was a cliche because it just seemed so positively reinforcing. The people who had families were generally happy. They had their struggles. They had their challenges. But they were generally happy and satisfied with their lives and, uh, and all that. And the people who were single were often portrayed as a little bit on the oddball side. You know, just a little quirky. Uh, in England, um, or in, in uh, I guess all of Great Britain, uh, it, they would be referred to as um, quirky. Uh, eccentric is the big word. You know, eccentric means you you haven't had your rough edges sanded bound by constant interaction with with uh, family around you, and that changed. I think really in the sixties, and and I think partly it changed. Of course, uh, governments want women in the workforce because they then get the double tax bonus of taxing women who formerly were providing services that couldn't be taxed as, as mothers and housewives, and also then taxing all the people who have to step in to provide those services, daycare workers and, and maids and restaurants and, and cooks and all that kind of stuff. And something really sort of shifted around the 60s where the family life then became portrayed as toxic and problematic, you know, the sort of ordinary people, Kramer versus Kramer kind of thing that went on. And the single people were portrayed as... Um, cool and hip and, you know, uh, traveling and doing sculptures and having lots of sex with uh, people who are remarkably STD-free and, you know, all all this kind of stuff. It really switched around. I was watching a movie on Netflix the other day where there was this, you know, cool, hip couple who were just having a great time sleeping around with everything that moved, including, I think, a shrubbery at one point. And uh, then they went over to visit some friends of theirs who have kids and the, the parents were miserable. And they literally said, they said to this cool, hip, sexy couple, don't have kids. It's terrible. Something like that. It's don't have kids. And it's like, you know, at a time when birth rates are really catastrophically low in the West, um, this portrayal of the single life as, you know, the ultimate that you could possibly hope for, which, you know, it is maybe for some people until you hit 35 and, and then it's a whole lot of not having high sexual market value and watching the wallpaper dry. Um, but this negativity towards family and, and, and children and so on. The parents are always stressed and they're always harried and they're always busy and they're always, you know, spilling juice on themselves as they rush out the door while their kids are hanging onto their legs and so on. They portray it as so harried and so difficult. It's almost like, uh, not, not a contraceptive, but a, st- a sterility agent for the population as a whole. Oh, there's, there's no question. And, and the worst thing about it is that it's a complete and utter lie. You know, um, yes. I mean, I can speak for myself, but, you know, um, as you were in you know, a band. It must I, have I was, been fun to be single. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I you know I was uh, traveling around the world. I was dating international models. Um, I you know 
I think I can honestly say that I don't know how I could possibly have had any more fun in terms of um, from the you know hedonistic uh, secular standard. And what I can say without any equivocation at all, without any hesitation at all, is that it was nowhere near as satisfying, as joyful, as wonderful as you know, marrying my wife and having our children. Um, nothing compares to it. I mean, it's 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 kind of like uh, C.S. Lewis once tr- was was trying to explain what heaven was like. And he said, "How do how do we explain what heaven is like? We haven't been there, um, and so forth." He said, "But it's even worse. It's even worse than that." We can't," he said. "There's no," he said. "Trying to for us to even imagine what heaven is like is like trying to explain what sex is like to a child." He said, um, "You're talking to a child, and they cannot believe that anything could possibly be better than chocolate." You know, like I mean, chocolate is is so wonderful. How could you possibly? grasp how could anything be better than than chocolate meanwhile the adults kind of going well yeah i like chocolate and all but you know i'd much rather have sex with her um and and, and so and if chocolate is involved so much the better but not necessarily <laughs> precisely but but it, it's kind of like that for the for the single person in that if you're single even if you've had a, a, a girlfriend or whatever um even if you've had somebody living with you or that sort of thing um you can't truly grasp the the depth of um of wonder and terror and and love and fear <laughs> that all gets wrapped up in the uh the fullness of family life you know there's there's i'm not talking about one particular element of it or anything i'm just talking about um the way that it changes you, you know, i was talking to a, a friend who was about to get married um, we went to their wedding actually very recently, and I said, "Look, uh, it's going to change your life. You know, it, your life is not going to be what it was before." I said, "But what you're going to find out is that you're not going to care and you're not going to mind." Right. You know, and and the thing is, yes, there are you know, yes, there are bad marriages, and there are you know, people do make stupid decisions um, both before they get married, who they get married to, and how they behave. Once they're married, um, th- this is all true, but we're not talking. We're, we're just talking about on average. You know, the I mean, anything, any action that you do, any choice that you make can can be wise or it can be foolish. It can go well or it can go poorly. But we're, but just on the whole, it tends to be um, a much more satisfying experience. And you know. I'm not just talking about, I'm not just drawing on my own anecdotal experience, but just when I look at my friends, when I look at those who uh, got married earlier and have four children, five children, in one case, is, in one case nine children, <laughs> um, and, and I compare it to the experience of, of those friends who didn't get married until they were older and were unable to have kids or, or just never found anyone and never, never did get married, um, there's absolutely no question that the it's the married couples with the kids who are definitely the happier ones. There's there's it, it's you can't even you can't really even compare it. It's not even a fair comparison, and that's why I think that what you're talking about um, the cultural programming 
is so poisonously false. It robs people. It does. Absolutely it does. And, you know, the worst thing is the way that I think Sex in the City in some ways was possibly the most evil television <laughs> program of all time because it, it encouraged so many young women to want to go off to the big city for their adventure and that sort of thing. And I was talking to a, a female friend of mine who had been been there in New York for three years, and she was lamenting the fact that you know, she not only wasn't married, but she didn't even see any prospect for getting married. And I said, look, because she was, you know, she was working in New York City. She was very cute, you know, had a great job, all that sort of thing. It was, I mean, she was basically living the sort of ideal sex in the city life, you know, working at a publisher and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it was like a glamorous mag- fashion magazine type thing. And I said, look, you're never going to find anyone there because everyone you meet there is there to have their big sex in the city adventure. And, um, you know, as soon as they have an adventure with you, then they want to move on to the next big experience. And, um, and sure enough, you know, um, uh, another friend who was also living in New York city at the time, you know, she finally threw up her hands left and, and did manage to get married and have kids before she was too old, which is, you know, which was great. But, um, you know, there's no question that that they are robbing people of some of the the greatest human experiences that that you can have, um, and they're also robbing they're robbing an entire generation of you know ten, fifteen, twenty percent of its generational cohort. You know, how many Einsteins or mm. uh, how many or supermodels or whatever sports stars have we lost just because uh television convinced a bunch of inexperienced you know young people who didn't know any better that they should sp- spend their 20s and early 30s uh running around trying to have more sex it's no, it's uh, it, it is really tragic, and I, I'm with Ann Coulter uh, when she wrote about this several years ago. That Sex in the City is um, the story of gay men in New York. They just put tits where the man boobs should be, uh, and um, that that is how gay men talk. That's how gay men act. And again, it's not all. I mean, I've had my gay roommates and have seen some of this stuff fairly up close and personal. Uh, but um, uh, it, it is tragic, and it is, of course, you know, we've talked about. Uh, I've talked about on this show this sort of. Um, uh, conservative versus liberal, this R versus K selection. Um, when you sell to people uh, orgasms and variety and so on, uh, and in return, uh, they can give up to you uh, fertility and stability and, and the capacity for love. We strip away what is really foundational to us as human beings. I mean, right. there's a bunny rabbits, right? Female rabbits that have like crazy, like re- reproductive sex. They can have given birth to a litter the next day. You know, you stroke their bat, their their butt goes up because they're ready for the next round. And so it turns human beings into this piston functioning, orifice seeking, lower mammalian nothing burgers. When we should, of course, you know, and sex is a wonderful part of a healthy relationship. But we should be trying to connect at a deep and meaningful and value based and and loving level with the sex as the as the bonus, rather than going into this pursuit of the junk food of casual sex. Tastes fine at the time, but I think and I think in particular for women, it does something truly tragic uh, to uh, to their hearts and their souls. Sex is kind of like cocaine in that, that you know that first rush is phenomenal. You know you you feel like a tiger. You you 
feel like you can you know go out and wrestle a bear and um it's just so awesome and then and then it wears off and so you you know you want it again and it it just the the effect just doesn't uh, you know you you need to keep doing more and more and then eventually you know you find yourself you know um staying up all night and Next thing you know, you're on a train with blood coming out of your nose, and you've been wearing the same clothes for two days. And and, and the, you're in pursuit. Uh, you 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 know, like all addictions, you end up avoiding negatives rather than pursuing positives. Like you're avoiding the crash rather than being in hot pursuit of the high. After a while, it wears you down that way. Yeah, it, it's just it, it doesn't, and it it gets you nowhere. It, 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 you know, you've you've lost the capacity to truly enjoy it. Um, y- you lose the ability to focus on anything else you know you just start chasing you just start chasing your next high but the 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 thing is is that it's it's not uh i'm not going to pretend that there's no appeal to it you know there there is there's a reason why um you know i think it was billy graham that once said um if you don't think sin is fun you're not doing it right <laughs> you know the uh and and they wouldn't call it temptation if there if it didn't have an appeal to us. If we didn't want to do it, um, and but but the the thing is is that it's important for people to learn that um, you know it's kind of like driving a car fast. It's fun to drive a car fast. You know, I, I like driving cars fast. But um, if you start driving a car fast, and then you need to keep going faster and faster and faster. And then you're bored unless you turn the lights off. You know, it's not going to be all that long before you crash into something pretty hard. And I think that that is what a lot of people are getting sucked into when they're getting drawn. When the when the the cultural programming of the media is convincing them that um, this mindless pursuit of pleasure is actually the smart and philosophically wise thing to do, which is, of course, totally contrary to the entire history of not only Christian religion, but also classical philosophy, which, you know, even the, 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 the virtuous pagans taught, you know, moderation um, at, at most, you know, um, even the um, Epictetus, who is, is often viewed as, as a hedonist, even he encouraged moderation in in the pursuit of the pleasurable, and um, the the lotus eaters in the um, in the Odyssey were a warning. And and what we've turned into to a certain extent is a a lotus eating population that is destroying itself, that's destroying its civilization, that's just destroying even its its redu- its reproductive capacity and its ability to enjoy pleasure um, simply because we insist on chewing on these. We're told, we're taught that chewing on these leaves is going to make us happier and sexier and cooler and, and smarter. So, And for those who don't, like we've got a presentation on freedomainradio.com or youtube.com slash freedomainradio called The Truth About Sex, which is one of our less fappy videos. Uh, and it goes into number of partners, bad outcomes, depression. So for those who, you know, maybe hearing this sort of coming at them sideways, so to speak, uh, you can go and find out more of the 
the facts about that because yeah i mean in the in the ancient world to be a slave meant to fundamentally to be a slave to your passions to not be in mastery uh, of your passions and that tender socrates said at the end of his life when his sexual desires began to wane that uh, he felt like it was like having a demon leave his body and actually concentrate on other things so i sort of put a, a little list here together i'm going to put a tiny thesis past you uh vox and and you can tell me what what you think so i put down some of the stuff that i've noticed uh, that are negative characters, and I'll put them in a little conceptual package and let me know what you think. Okay. So um, people, people you fly over tend to be losers, right? So fly over country, you know, somewhere between uh, uh, New York and, and San Francisco or Seattle or whatever, right? This fly over country, uh, they tend to be uh, losers. That's, that's one. Um, trashy people have infinite founts of wisdom, you know, like the hooker with the heart of gold, the homeless guy who, who speaks wisdom and so on. Uh, so these aren't people who've had tragically dysfunctional lives and probably horribly abused uh, childhoods and so on. They have wise, wise, trashy people. Uh, oh, you don't want to be a Republican in a, uh, in a movie these days, man. If you're a Republican, you might as well be a smoker. No, I'll go even further. If you're a Republican in the movie, you might as well be in a war movie and show someone a picture of your girlfriend because, man, that's just like – right? So if you're a Republican, that's no good. If you're a traditionalist, you must be a hypocrite, uh, you know, like uh, in um, – uh, American Beauty, right? The guy who's the Marine ends up being the gay hypocrite. You know, he hates homosexuality. And um, you don't want to be a dad or a male, a white male as a whole. You can be a minority because then you can be a magical minority. Again, fountains of wisdom and so on. Christian, uh, white male and so on. Ooh, and you really, really don't want to be a vet. Oh, man, you, you do not want to be a vet because they're all crazy. Uh, even though, of course, during the Iraq war, it was statistically... More dangerous to work on a farm or even drive a taxi than to be a soldier in Iraq. And most vets are stable people who contribute well to society. But the way that things uh, are portrayed. So I went through this list and we could go on all day. But all these people, if they're portrayed in a negative light, tend to vote Republican, tend to vote for the right. You know, uh, the people in, in the flyover country tend to be more conservative, uh, tend to be more Christians and so on. Republicans, of course, voting. Uh, traditionalists are voting uh, for the right. Um, uh, white males tend to vote for the right. Uh, Christians tend to vote for the right. Uh, um, and vets, of course, uh, the, the military is, is largely composed of people who are more conservative or vote more for the right. So I'd, I just sort of put this list together. And I want to get your thoughts because it just seems like it's portraying anybody who's going to vote for the right – um, in a horribly negative light. Well, yes, I think that I think that that's part of the cultural programming as well. I think that they are attempting to uh, bring about the reality that they want by by subconsciously programming, especially young people, because all these things are primarily aimed at young people. Um, trying to convince them that that you know if you go that way, then you are stupid and bad. And and no one will like you, and so forth. Now and you won't be pretty. Yeah, and, and you and you won't be pretty, which which is kind of ironic because we all know that the right wing girls are much hotter than the left wing girls on average. I mean, and they it, won't it, go crazy on you. You know, that's really you won't get. They won't go all Glenn Close on you. You're not going to be fatal attractioning yourself trying to run out of some burning building while putting your pants on as the sirens arrive. You know, the the, the right wing girls are not generally going to go completely mental on you. Well, the funniest thing is, I mean, we've even got the porn stars. You know, the the um, 
the What's porn this star porn thing I keep. I'm oh, sorry, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but the, yeah, I have to say that that's that's one thing. Um, that's one thing that you always need to be careful about when you're, you know, uh, Twitter friends with Mercedes Carrera. <laughs> it's like, you never know whether you're going to get, you know, some Is sort she of running for office. Sorry. <laughs> well, you never know when when you're going to get either, you know, some sort of uh, snappy or witty or or intelligent comment. Or, or something that you really don't want your kids going, hey, what's that? <laughs> so, um, but the point, the point is, is that, um, you know, a- attractive people actually tend to be uh, on the right. I mean, where do, you think all, where, where do you think all the uh, pretty blondes in California who, where do you think they come from? They all come from Iowa and Minnesota. And, um, and, and so... I mean, it's kind of funny. There was a um, a, a friend of ours had uh, we were being visited by um, the producer of one of the um, game companies we were working with, and we'd had a like a some sort of picnic for the the Bible study or something. There's about I don't know twenty five or thirty couples, and it was sort of funny because the the guy was just walking around because each of the couples had I think an average of about four kids, and he's like, you know, this is like this is like some sort of Aryan Nazi thing. It's like, it's all these pretty blondes and pretty blonde kids. And I said, this, this is, you know, this is Minnesota back then 20 years ago. But, um, it, you know, and, and the idea that um, these were stupid dads and wise cracking kids showing us how to do things. I mean, it, that picture could not possibly have been more false. You know, the, you, you had a group of, Highly intelligent men and women who were happily married, uh, plenty of kids. Um, you know, and, and the other irony too is that they always portray mothers. Uh, and this goes. This is something that you should put on your list. They always like to p- portray um, mothers with three or four kids as being fat and slovenly. Hmm. But the, oh, reality- the what's eating Gilbert grape kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and I mean, first of all, you very seldom see a, a mother with that many children. Um, you know, in the movies or in, in television. But, um, you know, the reality is that, uh, in fact, I was talking to a woman about this at the Lido the other day, you know, very, very slender, looked great in a bikini. And, um, and uh, I noticed she had a, a little kid with her. And, and I said, uh, you know, oh, um, you know, is that yours? And she's like, uh, yeah, him and like those three over there. <laughs> and, and I noticed that all the really overweight women had one kid, and all the really slender women were either young and single or they were like 30s, 40s and had at least three kids. Uh, and uh, like, like she said, I don't, have, I don't have time to sit down and you know, sit down in front of the TV and, and eat chips. <laughs> well, if you, if you play with your kids, I mean, the amount of calories I burn off as a dad is truly ridiculous. I might as well just set fire to a bunch of leaves and eat them and try to get energy that way. Uh, I spend half my life uh, trying to just get enough fuel to keep up with <laughs> being a dad. But I guess that also unconsciously programs women to have fewer kids, right? Because if you say, oh, well, if you have lots of kids, you're going to end up fat, uh, then that's going to program women to to want fewer kids, which again is part of that whole weird depopulation thing. I don't know if it comes from radical environmentalism or just general hatred of, of whites or, or Westerners and so on, but I guess that does really drive you that way. And also, I was talking in the show the other day, you know, obesity becoming a big problem in America. Well, that has a lot to do with being a single mom. 
Because one right. of the, I want to look good for my wife. You want to look good for your wife. They want to look good for us. So we stay in shape. We exercise. We do all that kind of good stuff. But if you're a single mom and, you know, the money's coming in no matter what, um, well, you know, is there that much of an incentive? Your sexual market value is pretty low anyway. Is there that much of an incentive to keep yourself trim? Uh, arguably uh, not so much. And that's another, of course, uh, on the list here, single moms portrayed in a positive way as victims, as people who need help, as noble uh, nuns sacrificing themselves for the welfare and health of their children, you know, other than my not choosing a guy who'd stick around. But that, again, single moms reliably vote for the left, and therefore they must be portrayed in a positive light. And if you can imagine putting a strip pro- the script proposal forward, you know, you sit down across, uh, you know, some liberal Hollywood filmmaker, well, I guess kind of a redundant phrase, but you sit and kind of say, well, I really want to do a cautionary tale on uh, a woman who pursues hedonistic pleasures uh, while her sister uh, ends up uh, getting married and uh, having kids. And this woman, you know, has a lot more fun in the beginning while the other woman is tired and staying up and enjoying the richness of being a mom. But then as time goes along, you know, the woman who was in it for the long haul with the wife and the kids, she ends up uh, being happy. She's got grandkids, whereas the other woman, you know, gets old and bitter and twisted and, and lonely and and has no connections with people and her sexual market value collapses and she really regrets not having children. And if you were to put that kind of movie forward, they'd look at you like like what you were saying is completely incomprehensible. It would never get off the ground no matter how well written it was. Oh, I I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, even worse than that, if you, you know, you could use that example of that, um, there's that mother uh, who just about set the internet on fire um, you know, a rather pretty, I think she was probably Filipino or something, but, you know, she's into fitness and whatnot. And she put up a picture of herself in a bikini with her three young kids, the youngest who was quite young, and just said basically, you know, I'm, I'm 30, I've got three kids, what's your excuse? And, uh, <laughs> and I mean, you know, she, she got, I mean, it was, it was in the English newspapers, you know, and the, the women were... Uh, who had chosen a different path, just, you know, the, they viewed that, I mean, it was obviously like, like they were being flayed with, with acid-tipped whips or something, just the mere fact that she existed and, and pointed out that, hey, I can be married, um, I can have three kids, and I can look great, you know, um, why, why don't you, why can't you? And uh, and people don't like to be reminded that that they can be better than they are. I mean, um, and speaking of losing weight, you know, I, I was um, one of my earlier videos with you. My wife was kind of like, "Wow, you're getting a bit of a chin there." It's you know, so I ended up losing nine pounds just because you know, she 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 decided I should lose some weight. You know, um, I, I think like, what is it? Sorry, I still get some comments about my early videos. Uh, you know, like, I think it's like, it's some ridiculous number. Please hold your thought. I'll be quick. But like 97% of people who lose weight, they don't keep it off or they gain it back or whatever. But all you have to do is change everything and stick to it. It's not really that complicated. But uh, yeah, some of my earlier videos, I lost like 20 or 30 pounds, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. And you just keep it off. You just, you just go back to the way you were. That's all. And um, you can do it. Uh, still get some comments like, wow, you were heavier back then. And it's true. You've got to just uh, do, do the right thing, especially as you get older and your metabolism starts to slow down and all the stuff that you used to be able to shrug off just kind of sticks to you now. But anyway, so um, yes, you lost the nine pounds. Good for you. No, it's, it, but it's, it's actually great because uh, I'm getting to the point where I'm, I'm rapidly approaching the end of my soccer playing career. And so... Knees getting it, a little it, tingly? <laughs> well, it's just you know the I, I'm I'm now the second oldest on the in, in the entire club, and so um, 
you know, I'm, I'm hoping to play three more years. So, I, you know, it's just like, hey, you know, if you if you cut it, that's that much less that you got to carry around for 90 minutes running around. And so, um, you know, you know, so it, it. But the point is, is that that's what married couples can do for each other. You know, I mean, it's not like it's not like you like to hear it, but but that's part of what caring about someone that you know you trust them in a way that you don't necessarily trust other people. Uh, and, uh, and plus they can call you out on things like, you know, like when you walk into the room and you're carrying a big brownie and a big glass of milk at, at midnight and then you just get, you just get the eye. You know, do you, do, like you, do you really want to eat that? Do you really feel you need to eat that? No, it's true. <laughs> Before I got married, after I got married, I found out there were two things. Number one, it is physically possible to make your bed in the morning, even though Reality dictates you're just going to mess it up again at night. It is possible to make your bed in the morning. Number two, you probably have heard this too, there are these things called checkups. Very, very interesting. You actually go to the doctor before you're hacking up a lung, and they will help you to prevent things. It's really, really cool, and it's one of the reasons married men uh, live longer. Oh, you're absolutely right. I, 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 hadn't, been to, I hadn't been to the doctor I mean, I can't remember. The only time I've been to the doctor was, was actually, I never went to the doctor. I would always go to the hospital because I had broken something sparring. Yeah. That, that you so, couldn't walk off. You know, if, if you walk off, like more of your shin, blown, shin bone ends up in the sewer. So you got to go to the doctor. I mean, that's. Well, I, I remember one, one time I got my nose broken in a, a ring fight. And so we what went the to. What does that mean? It was a, a martial arts exhibition oh, okay 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 and it was like you know sort of a full contact thing our our dojo was up against another dojo and i got my nose broken in it and um i won but i got my nose broken and so i went to the hospital and the nearest hospital was like the inner city one <laughs> so we walk in and there's people with like knives sticking out of them and bullet wounds i just said yeah i don't think we're gonna get any service here and so my friend just kind of straightened it out for me a bit and you know, it was. I probably should have gone to the doctor for that one too. But do, do you make yeah. whistling sounds when you walk upstairs, or has it healed okay? Uh, it's not quite. It's it's not as straight as it should be. But mm. you know, who cares? Where you know, <laughs> you, you get to already the point, had my like, kids. <laughs> yeah, whatever. But um, yeah, I, I like to is think gonna, that it, is you know, going to affect my Tinder profile. I don't think so. Sorry, go well, on. I, I like to think that it gives you more sort of a, a, a roguish, rougher, you know, pirate sort of thing. Or yeah. whatever, but anyhow. Um, but the point is, is that that's something that uh, you know married couples can do for each other. I mean, even things like, um, hey, you might want to get that mole on your back checked out, yeah. or or whatever. And um, and and again, it's not like um, it, it's not like TV. Uh, real relationships are not like TV. I mean, you know, um, in the same way that they don't get male friend, they seldom get male friendships right. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the only movies that ever got male friendships right was The Hangover. Mm. You know, where where the, the guys are just blatantly lying to the wives and girlfriends for their friend. Oh, he's fine, he's fine. <laughs> I have no idea where he is. But um you know, it, it's in the same way that they don't get male relationships right, they don't get male female relationships right either. I tend to suspect following the pattern, they probably don't get the female relationships right either, but, you know, I wouldn't know. Um, well, they're not interested in what to me is the highest purpose of art, which is to grow empathy and help us understand the degree of similarities that we have, uh, particularly those of us raised in a 
common cultural background, you know, and I've said this for years, you know, I was, I was, I read, um, uh, these book called famous fives to my daughter. I grew up on them and, and, uh, she really enjoys them. And, uh, it's, you know, common knowledge to people who write fiction and you've reread it, you may have noticed it too, but every now and then the character will look at something and think something that they never expressed to the other characters. And that's right. a remarkable thing. Cause I, you know, I don't know what you're thinking. I only know what you're saying, but with, with fiction, we can dip into other people's minds in a way that is impossible in real life. And, I th- and I've always argued that that helps grow empathy, uh, to recognize that other people are having thoughts that they don't share helps grow empathy. And it's true, actually, that some studies have come out that it does, fiction does sort of help grow empathy, which is uh, not sympathy, that's the maudlin and sentimental form of empathy, but a real empathy where you understand the motivations and intentions of others. A woman who's walking down the street and there's some creepy guy shadowing her, to have empathy for him means that she's aware of the danger. She, she is aware that he may have nefarious motives and she's scared of him. Empathy doesn't always mean sympathy, but um, a lot of people mis- mistake that. But the highest calling to me of, of art is to um, – it's like that old line, you know, we read to feel – we, we, we read to know that we're not alone. And uh, that, I think, has been really cast by the wayside. And now it's sort of like the media's relationship to the DNC that sort of came out in the WikiLeaks stuff recently. Now it's just, okay, which groups do I have to praise in order to get votes for the left and which groups do I have to demonize so that they can, they're considered to be unattractive people uh, in, uh, in society? Uh, and that is has as much relationship to art as Pravda has to good reporting. Uh, it is all manipulation, it is all control, and it is all the desperate bleatings of addicts of political power looking to get them keep their next fix. Well, it's even worse than that in in one regard because I think a lot of fiction, especially the type of fiction that I see, which is you know more modern lit and uh, science fiction and fantasy, is that. A tremendous amount of the novels being produced are basically being written by unhappy, uh, low socio-sexual rank people who are attempting to rewrite the script of their lives. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, if you look at, I mean, it's really remarkable. Uh, you, you mentioned A Game of Thrones earlier. And if you read the, A Song of Fire and Ice, which is you know, the whole, or Song of Ice and Fire, um, the, the series, what's really astonishing is that apparently uh, married couples don't have sex. You know, there's a <laughs> tremendous amount of, of sex taking place in the book, okay? But virtually none of it is between married people. Um, there's literally uh, multiples more rape then there is a uh, examples of actual rapes taking place. Then there is encounters between a man who is married to the woman, and you know I don't think that that's an accident. You know I don't think that that is an accident because if you look at the author, you know he is a overweight little troll who quite clearly has not had a great deal of uh, contact with the opposite sex over the course of his life. The kind and, of people you always think that they're writing their book with one hand and you don't want to know what the other hand is up to. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's actually really alarming when you consider the amount of, uh, uh, you know, as, as one of my readers once said, um, you know, George Martin quite clearly thinks that rape is the normal form of sexual interaction between men and women because quite clearly there is not, aren't very many women who would voluntarily uh, want to get that close to him. Um, 
now whether he's correct about that or not, I don't know. But the fact is that the the nature of of human sexuality in those books is again completely warped. I, I mean, it's just not. It's not even. It's not even remotely credible. And um, you know, when I was writing. Uh, a Throne of Bones, uh, the, the first book in, in my epic fantasy series, that was actually one of the things that I wanted to address, which is, you know, to actually have men who were, you know, attractive to women, you know, because that, that's the other thing, is that a lot of fiction is written by very low rank, you know, what, what we call gamma, ma- gamma males. A lot of fiction is written by them, and they have absolutely no idea how to attract a woman they have no understanding of why a woman would be attractive, attracted to a man. And so it, it, it's so funny. We're actually, we've actually been developing a theory of literature on this. You can actually predict what color hair the evil woman, the romantic interest, and the um, evil temptress will have. I think, you know, the, I think I remember you mentioning this when we yeah, last talked, the, the yeah, red and, hair, and, right? Yeah, and, and we, we, went, we went and uh, mapped it out. And, it, you know, it works, incredibly well because you, you know these are these are basically you know grown men that are psychosexually uh limited in their development they're basically kind of stuck at the 13 or 14 year old boy level and so you know they th- how do how are they going to produce great art that advances human understanding when they haven't even fin- finished psychologically maturing it's not possible well, there used to be. I mean, I I grew up on the on the classics, and you know, my emotional, spiritual respect for Western literature is something I could bore the planet for days on. But there was, to me, the active imagination that you know rode like a bunch of Cossacks into reality and enhanced it. It it, it seized reality and it made reality greater and it brought out themes that gave people courage and insight and depth and wisdom and power in making moral choices in particular. And that tended to come out of people who had really achieved things in life and who weren't recoiling. And it seems to me more recently, and I don't know exactly when the turning point was, it definitely wasn't there in the 19th century, but certainly has been there in the later part of the 20th century, where it seems to me that the imagination has become something which is recoiling from reality and, and creating something other than reality, creating in, in many ways the opposite of reality. And we were talking about Game of Thrones. I haven't seen it. And I was we were just making a joke. I'm going to watch it backwards because I like happy endings. So I like to watch people not be raped and be reassembled <laughs> from their component parts. But there's this aspect of imagination now that is not helping people to stride into the world more confidently and achieve great things, but is giving them an alternate universe to hide out in, not to prepare them to go back into the world, but almost to stay. And so when you have this um, fiction which is involving such dysfunction and such uh, aggressively negative views of family and and rape is everywhere and, and torture and murder and so on, and it's not like um, I, when I was younger, played the lead in Macbeth, so I know a little bit about Shakespeare's darker side. But of course, you know, that had, spoiler, that, I think it's okay now, 400 years. But I think, I mean, that had a, a happy ending and it showed uh, the, the negative, uh, the descent into madness and self-destruction of a man who, um, well, you know, he was a status, so you could go out and hack up a bunch of peasants. It was fine, but kill one king and suddenly you can never sleep again. But anyway, it's a topic for another time. But 
to me, arts used to aggressively go out into the world and, and pave the way for you to achieve great things in the world. And now it seems like a lot of the fiction is a recoiling from the world, a turning away from the world, and a portrayal of a world that desiccates the spirit rather than um, energizes it. Well, a lot of it is being written by people who are locked in their own delusion bubble. You know, the, the, I don't think, mo- I think that many of these authors would be horrified if they understood the ugliness and the, the immaturity that they are revealing when they write these things. You know, um, there's a, a, a fairly popular series of books by a guy named Patrick Rothfuss. And I, I've tried three times to, to read them, and I've never been able to finish the first novel. You know, cause, just because I'm an editor, I, you know, I write this stuff, I, I feel like I should at least know what some of these, these popular things are. And it's actually worrisome that these books are popular because the, the lead or the protagonist uh, constantly lies to himself and everyone else. Um, is is constantly in a state of you know he he can't he can't go to be in a class without showing up the the teacher. Um, uh, he's a virgin. He um, encounters a woman, an older woman, for the first time, and, and he's the best she's ever had. I, I mean, it's it's. It Don't was, you remember that first time you played tennis? How great you were! <laughs> no, it similar was, grip, but not quite. I was, I was, I was talking to someone about it, and they, they're like, "He's like, oh my!" I, I, he's like, "Either this is the most unreliable anti-hero in the history of fiction, or this guy has never actually been on a date with a girl." <laughs> you know, the author himself, right. and you know, and you're you're just reading this stuff, and you're just thinking, uh, you know, on, on what planet? Do these people imagine they're orbiting? I mean, th- th- there's no connection. You know, we're not talking about um, using a fictional environment to uh, paint great themes like Tolkien did, you know, to, to make, or, and you're not talking even about, um, you know, because I would, I would put Tolkien, uh, on the fantasy side, I would put Tolkien stuff up at the top. Um, on a level below that, you've got, the didactic approach of C.S. Lewis, where he's you know basically teaching uh, fairly simple Christian theology in a memorable and enjoyable way that people actually would like to experience. But I think that what we've gone from is uh, teaching useful uh, information through uh, fantastic examples that people would enjoy to basically um, creating these delusion bubbles that people can hide away from reality in um, and, and try to convince themselves that they're living in, uh, living in a place that is not painful to them. Because I think a lot of, the, a lot of these people are, uh, are, are, are damaged and crippled people. And so the problem is we've got, in, instead of you know, Winston Churchill uh, you know, writing uh, um, books about heroism and, and that sort of thing. We've got these um, emotionally undeveloped, uh, psychologically crippled individuals teaching other people how they avoid reality. And that's not art, and that's also not good for society. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, just the, the thought popped into my mind. Um, I read a lot about Churchill in, in writing a historical novel. And uh, Lord Gort, which is a perfectly <laughs> a Tolkien kind of name, Lord Gort was, I think it was in the Battle of France in May of 1940, uh, was trying to hold off the Germans while, of course, people were trying to escape over the channel. And um, it was a hopeless endeavor. They were never going to survive it. And uh, uh, Churchill sent him the message, uh, the eyes of the empire are upon you. The eyes of the empire are upon you. I don't know if it's just my heritage or something like that, but it's like, yeah, that could make me want to fight to the death. Even just that particular thought or image and that kind of motivation um, is really sadly lacking. And and there's this fantasy now, which I have criticized a lot. I've done a movie review of Frozen and, and the Star Wars things, and this is crazy thing where you have excellence without effort. Now, the only excellence that exists without effort is sexual market value in particular for young women. That is the, quote, excellence. That There you have value without effort. Why? Because you have eggs. You know, maybe you have value without effort if you inherit a whole bunch of money in your man or whatever. But this idea, you know, where, where this guy says, oh, it was my first time with an older woman and I was the best you'd have. It's like, that, that's excellence without effort. And right. this this excellence without effort stuff really drives me crazy because I think it is so paralyzing because all excellence requires enormous amounts of effort. To become good at anything means being bad at it for a long, long, long time. I remember when I was a kid, five years old, I was in a daycare and I had, I wanted to paint a picture of kids going down a toboggan. Now, I grew up in a toboggan on a snowy slope. I think it was one of the rare years that it actually snowed a tiny little bit in England, and I, we were so excited. And I had, you know, in, in my mind, I knew exactly what I wanted, blonde hair, the, the flying in the wind, the rosy cheeks, you know, with just that right little bit of apple redness in them and the laughing red lips and, and the, 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 the uh, scarf flying out behind. And the, I had all of it, all of it in my head. And then you, you know, pick up these big ham-fisted camel hair brushes, you dip it into your paint, and it's like smudge, you know. I, I have blobs and I can't do anything with them because it's water watercolor, watered down stuff in the middle of a daycare and there's kids pushing the table and it's like blurp. And I remember thinking, man, if I ever want to be a good painter and get the stuff in my head actually on the canvas, it's going to take forever. It's like when I picked up guitar and I'm like, well, that hurts. <laughs> you know, like, right. and it sounds terrible. And I can't change chords without, you know, and I learned to play like three songs and I'm like, uh, you know, I, the, the cast benefit doesn't work for me <laughs> at all. And so and there's other things which, you know, I spent a lot of time being bad at, you know, sort of exploded on the scene 10 years ago. But I'd spent 20 years before that debating and thinking and reasoning and writing and all that. So it's like the 10-year overnight success stuff. But this idea where you keep getting this stuff put forward that you have excellence without effort. Like Fifty Shades of Grey. This woman is just fascinating to this giant penis billionaire with helicopters coming out of his ass you know it's, why no effort is she stunningly beautiful has she does she work out five hours a day is she a super no she just works in a hardware store he's no effort it just happens like the woman in 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 this new star wars movie she can do everything she can pilot she can take down guys five times her size with jujitsu moves how why because she's an orphan no effort no effort whatsoever right. and the idea that it paralyzes people so much to continually get this impression that you can have excellence without effort it makes people sit there and wait for excellence to come for them and it never ever will well i think that a lot of people today are terrified of failure i, I think that they're really frightened by it um you know and, and i talk i talk to uh, people on the blog 
not I wouldn't say often, but but it, the subject comes up from time to time because people will say, well, you know, you're involved in a lot of stuff, and you know, you seem to be fairly successful at most of the things you do, and I and and also I've noticed that like the left when they'll attack me, they will they'll constantly try to like say, oh, you're a failure here, you're a failure there, and I always laugh because you know, I, they're not even pointing at my failures. I'm like. If you're going to talk about my failures, I can give you a list, a long list of things that I have completely failed at. You know, things that I tried to do and, and just went nowhere and in and, and companies that we started and, and didn't go anywhere. And I'm like, you guys, you're trying to give me a hard time about things that those are not the failures. You know, you've even heard of the failures. And, and you know, I, I think that that is something that is that we need to uh, teach others is that not only is it okay to fail, you're going to fail. You must. But, but try a lot. One thing I learned from Chernovich, who I, I believe you talked to recently, um, it was very important for me, was he said, you know, um, you know, you got to just get past this whole, you know, middle class pussy, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm I I'm afraid I'm afraid to look like I'm trying. You know. He said you just he said, you know, basically you're, you know, yeah, okay, I understand, you know, you're from an upper middle class family and so everything is supposed to come easy and natural and stuff. And he's like, you know, that's bullshit. And you know it. And he said, you know, you he said you work hard, I work hard, we all work hard. Sometimes it succeeds, sometimes it doesn't. Well, you know, try five different things. And then reinforce success and take your effort away from the failure. But you, the thing is, you and it's totally true, you never know what's going to fail and what's going to succeed. Castellia House was not supposed, all Castellia House was supposed to be was a mechanism for us to bring in ebooks into our games. Well, you know, mm-hmm. one thing, between one thing and another, the games have not come out as quickly as, as we'd hoped. You know, we just finished the first one very recently. Um, and signed it to a publisher, but you know, so it'll be out in a couple months. But in the meantime, you know, Castelia has grown up into being you know the most significant independent science fiction publisher out there. And so, oh, oh and by the way, I have to thank you and your readers. Um, the Missionaries, which we talked about last time, um, was not only published, but it's been a huge success. It was actually number one in the humor category and in the literary satire category on Amazon. The reviews have been fantastic, and uh, and so uh, I want to thank your uh, thank your viewers because I'm glad you guys gave it a chance, and I'm really glad that you guys liked it as much as you did. Oh well, you know, credit to the author. I mean, the, the, all, all the advertising in the world can only get people to sit down in your restaurant once; they have to like the food. So, credit to you and the and the author. Uh, sorry, were you just in the middle of something there? Oh yeah, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent. <laughs> okay. um, but but the um, you know, getting back to what you were talking about with with heroism. You know, one of the, the scenes that I put in my, my book, uh, A Throne of Bones, was inspired by a Israeli security guard. And, you know, t- I mean, to me, that, that was real heroism at work because uh, there was a, a female suicide bomber, a young one, and she was uh, trying to get into a market that was full of, you know, kids and, and women and children and stuff. And the, the security guard saw the wire on under her hand and grabbed her and uh she you know she started shrieking at him about you know 
that she had a, a bomb and she, you know, and he, he looked at her very calmly and said, uh, then we will die here together, but you are not going in there. And so she triggered the bomb, killed him, but you know, he saved the lives of, you know, probably anywhere between 10 and 30 people. Um, and so that, that just really, that kind of heroism really made an impact on me. And I wanted to, uh, communicate that through, uh, through the book. I mean, obviously it's a very, very different sort of thing because it's, it's a very different sort of environment, but, um, you know, those are the kind of lessons that we want to, to teach people, you know, um, the, you know, the, the lessons like, uh, Chesty Puller, the famous Marine general, uh, who in Korea, um, they found out that, that, you know, they were, the Marines were completely surrounded and, he called his men together and said, we've got the enemy exactly where we want them. They can't get away from us now. And, <laughs> and sure enough, they, they fought their way right through them. And, uh, you know, and of course, I mean, that, that's, that's a leader. You know, we're, I was watching a band of brothers with my son um, the other night, and it, it was the episode where they attack the, the German gun, uh, the German guns. There's four 88s. Yeah. And it, he commented how difficult it must be to have all these guys behind you and have all these people shooting at you and having to be the first one to say, follow me. And, and, and we need to teach the younger generation that. I mean, I'm so glad that Stephen Ambrose you know, got together with the, the you know, Easy Company and the, and the um, 101st Airborne because you know, to me, that's such a, a, a powerful lesson in the kind of heroism that we increasingly don't understand anymore. And I hope that um, you know the the younger generation of of soldiers, you know, will share their stories from Iraq and 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 Afghanistan and so forth. I mean, I mean, I'm totally opposed to those wars. I think it's absolutely ridiculous that that we're there at all. But that doesn't reflect upon. Uh, the soldiers who are doing their job, you know, who are, are not given a vote <laughs> about where they go. Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in the stories that we tell, whether they're fiction, whether they're nonfiction, or whether like the missionaries, they're kind of a blur of the two. Um, you know, we can pass on what we learn to the succeeding generations. And the great thing about writing is that, you know, you and I, we learned from men who lived 2,400, 2,500 years ago when we, when we read Aristophanes, when we read Aristotle, when we read Thucydides. And, um, and, and it's really remarkable, I think, you know, when you read that chapter on revolution in Thucydides, it, it kind of freaked me out a bit when I read it because it read like it had been written this century. And then you realize that it's 2,000 whatever, you know, 2,400 years old or so. I think it was written around 404 uh, BC. And you realize that, you know, human nature has not changed in all that time. We may have better technology, but, um, and that's why I think it's so important for us to uh, shore up the cultural supports for Western civilization because, um, you know, without it, uh, we know exactly where we're going to head because that's where we were before. Without, um, yeah, without courage, 
everything becomes determinism. Uh, without courage, the, the, the decay and the entropy of civilization occurs uh, against her will, against her whim. And uh, yeah, my concern is that uh, people are going to finally find their spines when it's too late. And this is why, you know, I do what I do, you do what you do, which remind people that we need courage now, not later. Now, you have new stuff coming out of Castalia House before the end of the year. Let's, let's close off with giving people a nice little preview and teaser of what you've coming out the pipe. Okay, sounds good. Um, well, we're gonna f- we've got seven of the nine original There Will Be War anthologies, uh, which were by Jerry Pornell, which were hugely, uh, hugely significant for my intellectual development. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just asked you to, to say something. Okay. Was there a story in this? I think I remember this when I was in, in my early teens. Reading one of these, there was a story where an alien... Oh, we'll cut this if it's a spoiler. There's a story where there's a, an alien who gives the man the capacity to immediately feel his effect upon other people. Am I in the right neighborhood with that? Yes, I'm not sure if it's in actually in one of these or not, but it's the right kind of... It's, it's that era science Okay, fiction. okay, got it, got it. All right, and good. So, yeah, those are great books. Yeah, the, but uh, anyhow, we're, we're going to uh, finish the old series. Uh, so we've all we're missing. We've just published volume six. All we're missing is volume seven and eight. And then we're also we we revived the whole series last year after a, a twenty five year absence um, with volume ten. So we're going to follow that up with volume eleven as well. Um, John Wright has a new series that he's going to be introducing um, called Moth and Cobwebs. And it's a very interesting, very, uh, very deep uh, tale of 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 the sort of um, fairy world that interacts with our own, but but that we don't see. Um, so that that's going to be that's going to be good. Uh, I'm hoping to get my own a sea of skulls out. Um, that's you know those are 850 pages. Uh, each book, so it, it's uh, I'm, I'm planning to get it out in November. Uh, that's the sequel to A Throne of Bones, and then uh, we're n- I'm not sure about this one, but it's actually possible uh, that we're going to be signing the autobiography of Adolf Hitler in Hell. <laughs> so we're 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 talking with the author. I think that we're the the leading candidate, and so. Um, it's really going to blow a lot of people's minds, um, especially because uh, this is a, a pretty uh, significant author that you wouldn't necessarily expect Castellia to be publishing. So, Chapter one, wh- it is a lot warmer than Stalingrad. <laughs> there you go. That's my marketing. Anyway, go on. <laughs> um, but then, uh, and then we've also got, um, I'm, I'm really happy about, uh, we're going to be publishing a couple books by Nick Cole. And his stuff is fantastic. Um, and in fact, uh, we're going to be publishing the, uh, hardcover and the paperback of control alt revolt, which is a, a, a funny, awesome book about the game industry. Um, and, and it really got him, it actually got him dropped by Harper Collins because, uh, the artificial intelligences are, are watching a reality show and, when they realize that, that humans abort their own, they reach the conclusion that humans are going to throw the off switch once they realize that the AIs are sentient. And so they de- decide they better wipe out humanity first. 
Right. But 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 it's 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 a hilarious subversive book, and it was so offensive to HarperCollins that they actually severed their uh, ties with him over it. What a negative view of abortion in any way, shape, or form. Off to the gulag with him. And, I mean, and of course, the funny thing is that used to be a really terrible thing. Now it's kind of like a badge of honor. Rejected by HarperCollins. Step inside, young man. <laughs> yeah, well, the amazing thing was it really didn't have much to do with the, the book. It was just basically the, the excuse to have the AIs want to wipe out the humans. And it was actually done very uh, in a very humorous fashion because the description of the, the reality show was almost as cringe-making as the real, the real reality shows that they televise these days. But, um, but so, and then, um, so we're going to be publishing Nick Cole, and then uh, you know, we're also going to be publishing um, a very funny book called Loki's Child, which kind of reminds me of Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, and then we will have a book on Trump coming out soon from uh, Mr. Chernovich. Very, very good. All right. So thanks a lot for your time today, this evening. Um, Voxday.blogspot.com and Castilia House. I'm going to spell that for people just in case you're listening to the audio book, uh, the audio of this. Uh, C-A-S-T-A-L-I-A house.com. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Vox. Always a great, great pleasure. Keep on keeping on. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Excellent.